Well, it's a great pleasure and privilege to have Dr. Sinclair Ferguson with us this evening uh, to give this uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture. Dr. Ferguson is the Senior Minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, Visiting Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. He's on the Board of Trustees of the Banner of Truth Trust, and he's well known, of course, for all his writings and speaking. I remember some years ago now when I was a student, I think, here at the seminary, uh, attending the Banner of Truth Ministers Conference in Leicester, and uh, I forget who was due to give three papers on John Calvin, various aspects of Calvin's life and ministry, very specific subjects. And whoever was due to give those papers was taken ill, I think, at the last minute. And uh, Dr. Ferguson stepped in at the last minute and gave three papers on Calvin, not just three papers on Calvin, but three papers on those precise topics which had been assigned to the other speaker. At least that was the story, I assume it's true. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to speak to us on Calvin the Man, a Heart of Flame. Well, let me first of all thank the principal for his welcome and introduction and assure him the story is true, uh, but the quality of the addresses is rather doubtful, if I remember correctly. And to say to you uh, what a, a joy it is for many of us that Dr. Williams has been appointed to be the director of the John Owen Center. That's very encouraging because of his gifts and graces and because of the momentum it will bring to the centre and also I'm sure because of the, the blessing it will bring to many ministers and through them to many congregations. And I'm particularly delighted and privileged to be invited to come to the John Owen Centre to give the Martin Lloyd-Jones Memorial Lecture on the subject of John Calvin. That is probably as near as I shall ever get to an honorary evangelical knighthood (laughs) and uh, I really count it a tremendous joy and privilege to be able to do this actually because of contact you understand in different ways with each of these three men perhaps best to begin with the last of these three I was at one time as some of you know the most northerly based minister of the gospel In the United Kingdom, there was nothing beyond my parish. I was, I think, probably about 27 years old. And in the mail one day, one o'clock, when the mail eventually arrived on the island through many dangerous toils and uh, snares that had already come. uh, And I always left to the last the letter that looked most intriguing and I opened a letter and it was from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writing from London to the furthest northerly point in Her Majesty's shrinking empire (laughs) and I suppose I was just many one of many younger men who in different ways were the recipients of his interest and his prayers uh, and his encouragement actually he was Uh, urging me to come to London to preach and uh, I remember with some trepidation on my little typewriter writing back to him and saying I wasn't coming and about 18 months or two years later he called me one Saturday night I can remember we were having eggs and bacon for tea and the two boys we had were a little boisterous it was 5 o'clock at night I picked up the phone and I heard this voice saying, I won't try and imitate it. Uh, this is Martin Lloyd-Jones calling from London. And it really was Dr. Lloyd-Jones. <laughs> and he said, we're, we're inaugurating a new theological seminary. And we wonder if you would come down to teach. I'll call you on Monday night for your response. This was Saturday night. It was two sleepless nights. <laughs> And again, when Dr. Lloyd-Jones called, I guess I was safe on the side of the border I was on. I declined uh, his, his invitation. But then in 1978, 
I had what I regard as one of the great uh, highlights of my life. I was invited to speak at a conference at which Dr. Lloyd-Jones was the other speaker. And this time, this was the rashest of decisions. This time, I actually accepted the invitation. And that was the occasion in which I learned that uh, if it is intimidating to preach with Dr. Lloyd-Jones sitting just there in front of you, remember that God himself hears all your sermons. And so uh, I, I owe, like probably almost everybody in the room, a great debt to Martin Lloyd-Jones, as I owe a great debt to John Owen, as I owe actually a more original debt to Calvin. And I'm happy, uh, although not particularly competent, happy to speak to you this evening on Calvin the man. Let me say something very personal. First of all, about Calvin the man, I was a 15-year-old boy, a, a recent convert, uh, who had only heard John Calvin's name in history classes in high school, and all I'd heard about him was that he taught the doctrine of predestination, which meant that if the bullet had your name on it, it would hit you, and it didn't matter how you lived afterwards, if you were predestined, you were guaranteed to go to heaven. And I remember as a very young Christian thinking, either my teacher is wrong, or John Calvin is wrong. Because the scriptures teach us that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it so happened, to use the words of scripture, that when it came time for our presentations to be allotted, my history master, who had defamed John Calvin, said to me, Ferguson, he knew I was a convert, he said, Ferguson, you will talk to us either about Martin Luther or John Calvin. I had read through the whole of the sports section in the local lending library, and since I'd been converted, I'd started on the religious section. <laughs> and so I went to the religious section, and wonder upon wonders, I actually happened upon... Uh, very, very fine study of Calvin by Francois Wendell. I think it had just been recently translated into English and I gave my little paper. I think there were three other Christians in the class who surrounded me thereafter. And the thing they wanted to know was why had I not explained away Calvin's teaching on predestination? And I remember just saying nothing for a moment and uh, being diminished in their eyes and then I thought well in for a penny, in for a pound and there were pennies in those days I said I couldn't you couldn't they said, I said no I believe it and uh, they started back in horror and I guess I was a marked Calvinist ever since that day I remember buying as an 18 year old the beverage translation of the institutes horrible print, horrible brown cover but that marvellous blurb by this man whom I knew very little about Martin Lloyd-Jones and uh, I remember from that point onwards how much the ministry of John Calvin in the institutes, in his commentaries in his letters, in his treatises I suppose more formed my way of thinking about theology than any other Christian theologian and so uh, this talk this evening is simply a very small repayment of a very great debt despite the fact I'm sure Calvin himself would have forbidden me from talking about him and to talk to you about his life and I want to make as some of you with a little humour would probably guess I want to make five points <laughs> first of all I want to talk a little about Calvin's early life and then about the events that surrounded his conversion thirdly about the story of his ministry fourthly and these points will probably get briefer as we go on I want to say something about his friendships which were so significant in his life and finally point number five I'll try and draw out some lessons or applications that we can learn from Calvin's life and God's providences in that life. So first of all, something about his early life. 
He was born in July the 10th, 59, in the town of Noyon, which is about 50 miles northeast of Paris. His father was an official in the local cathedral, and that brought to not only the father, but also to the children certain perks because of his role in the general Noyong society. His mother was by reputation a, a beautiful. Of course, that's always true in history, isn't it? The mother is always beautiful. The father was apparently rather a difficult character. And she was also, in the Roman Catholic sense, an unusually pious woman. Calvin apparently remembered times when she would take him as a little boy with her on pilgrimages. He had a memory apparently of kissing a relic. And then his mother died when he was about six years old. And in some ways, as you trace Calvin's life and his relationship with his father, you get some sense in those early days of a boy who is missing his mother. His relationship, as far as I can see, with his father was always dutiful, but it never seems to have been particularly affectionate. One of the blessings of his father's position was that as a, an ordinary citizen, he nevertheless had the benefit of rather a good private education with uh, young boys who belonged to the higher classes of my own life. And that really was, I think, the beginning for the young Calvin of an extraordinary, unusual thirst for knowledge and for learning. Another but rather perverse blessing of this is that the young Calvin had access to the Roman Catholic equivalent of university scholarship money. That took the form of being appointed as the rector or the pastor of a congregation. And by the time Calvin had graduated from the University of Paris, he was, strictly speaking, the pastor of three different congregations. He never, of course, preached there. He rarely went there, but he received the stipend from there. Part of it was used, as many of you know, was characteristic of the pre-Reformation church. Part of it was used to pay somebody usually incompetent to conduct the services, and the rest, in this case, went to finance the education of young John Calvin. He went to the University of Paris when he was around 14. He spent the first few months in a college where uh, the one thing that he seemed to remember from it was that he was given Latin lessons by one of the finest Latin teachers of his age and indeed later on in his life he would dedicate one of his commentaries to this particular man's uh, dedication to him and he was able to look back at the providences of God and how as a, as a youngster in his teens uh, a sponge for learning he had, he had had this singular blessing that actually in many ways made his ministry a very unusual thing in the 16th century, of a, a brilliancy in the employment of the Latin language, not simply an ability to use it, but an ability to use it with a, a style of rhetoric, with a clarity of vocabulary, uh, with a, a certain delicacy of phrase, and uh, although his Institutes of the Christian Religion ended up in 1559 as a big book, he really was a master of saying things with clarity and brevity. And it became one of the passions of his life to be able to do that, whether he was writing letters or writing theological treatises or writing the Institutes or especially writing commentaries or preaching in his native French language. To be able to use language in such a way that without apparent illustration, by the use of metaphor and simile and a ton of a phrase, the message he wanted to communicate would come alive to those who read or those who listened. And some of this at least 
he was able to look back on his lessons as a young teenager under Mathurin Cordier and give thanks to God that God had placed that man in his life. After a few months he moved from the Collège de la Marche to the Collège de Montague, which was, uh, it seems to me, a monastery for teenagers and was largely intended for those who were going into the priesthood which at that time certainly was Calvin's father's intent for the young man. By all accounts, uh, this uh, was a college that was characterized by two things. A disastrous chef, which uh, led, Calvin believed, partly to the ruin of his health and uh, withal to the ruin of the health of certain other notables from the first part of the 16th century. And it was also a place of enormous discipline. Life in the college lasted from around 4 o'clock in the morning until 8 o'clock in the evening, in the winter 9 o'clock in the evening, in summer. It was punctuated by lessons and exercises and minor inquisitions a little exercise and uh, very bad food but despite all that or perhaps because of some of it Calvin learned from these very early days an extraordinary self-discipline later on when he became a law student one of the things that his friends found themselves irritated by was this Calvin discipline and uh, the discipline was simply this the end of the day he would review everything that he had learned during the day first thing in the morning he would not leave his bed until he was sure that he knew what he had learned the previous day actually if you've never tried it that's a great discipline and if your children have never tried it it would certainly do something to improve their academic record. I actually did try it for a while and was astonished as an enthusiastic young Calvinist. I need to try and follow the master's disciplines. I, I became quite astonished at how much I knew I knew. <laughs> of course, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. But it is a most uh, fascinating and useful discipline. And these things were injected into Calvin in his early life. And in many ways they are the explanation of his vast productivity in later life. In a sense, in God's providence, though the young man was not a true believer in Jesus Christ, God was building into his life nuts that like a squirrel he was gathering and that later on in wintry times he would be able to use for the glory of God. By the time he had graduated, his father had fallen out with the cathedral. In fact, his father uh, was to be excommunicated, I think, in 1528. And were it not for intervention from the family, would have been buried in an unconsecrated grave. And whether because of that fallout, personally, or because of some of the movements that were beginning to take place in the life of the Roman Catholic Church. Calvin tells us in his introduction to his commentary on the Psalms that though his father had originally intended him for the priesthood, Gerard Cauvin decided that uh, young Jean should now study the law because, as Calvin says, uh, it looked as though being a lawyer gave you a better living than being a minister in the church. And so Calvin set off dutifully, albeit with a certain distance from his father, to study first of all at the University of Orléans and then later on at the University in Bourges. And he was at this time, as he confesses again in a passage in his uh, introduction to his commentary on the Psalms, the only place where he really speaks very personally about his own conversion he tells us that he was at this time stubbornly addicted to the papacy. And probably there are three major words there. Number one, papacy, the medieval Roman church with its sacramental way of salvation. Addicted, 
in the sense that uh, he was devoted to it and lived under it, under it and stubbornly so and although he says no more about that it, it, it is certain I think that in his earlier education he had some exposure to the new gospel of the Lutherans indeed in uh, those days he must have known that Luther's writings in the, around about 1520-1521 were under examination by the professors in the theological faculty in the University of Paris uh, you know what it's like to be a student students are always especially if they're interested in theology wanting to talk about the latest theological issue arguing and discussing late into the night and one certainly has the impression from this little expression that Calvin uses that he wasn't simply accidentally addicted to the papacy but that he was himself antagonistic to the message of the Reformation but this although the story remains opaque this was soon to change so let's turn from his early life to the days that surround his conversion I've already suggested that I think in his undergraduate days he was probably already if perhaps in a perverse way exposed to the message of the reformation he was back in Paris later on after his law studies and there it's pretty clear one or two things begin to happen to the young Calvin first of all it's clear from the people he knew and the contacts he made and the uh, entourage of friends who surrounded him or whom he surrounded that several influences were being brought to bear upon his life one of them was the new humanism the rediscovery of ancient literature and the discovery that so much knowledge and learning and education had simply been old wine poured by one scholar into somebody else's old wine bottle and poured out of that into somebody else's and just at this time, the time of the renaissance the time of the new humanism the time of the discovery of some of the ancient uh, 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 works of antiquity that had been rediscovered the learning of the languages of antiquity not just Latin but Greek and Hebrew the uh, new edition of the Greek New Testament that had been produced by Erasmus and this great uh, hunger and thirst that Calvin had already for knowledge, the availability of the New Testament and friends who were studying it and it's pretty clear that this, this new humanism of which Calvin himself was very much a part his very first published work was actually a commentary on uh, the Latin author Seneca's book on mercy or clemency and so there he was studying texts to see what these texts had to say for themselves and he's beginning to be surrounded by or at least exposed to people who are studying the New Testament in this way and discovering that in fact there is an hiatus between the apparent teaching of the New Testament and what it is that the church has been teaching second thing that seems to me particularly from some of his later writings the second thing that seems to me to have been particularly influential in Calvin was this that the way of salvation of the late medieval Roman Catholic Church could never produce spiritual certainty one of the things we notice later on in Calvin's writings is that having certainty was a tremendously important thing to him he wanted a gospel that would give him certainty and it seems again to me clear that one of the things that he must have come to realise about the, the way of salvation in the late medieval church was it could never give certainty indeed for the Roman Catholic Church certainty certainty in spiritual things was reserved either 
for those who have had a mystical vision of God or for those whose lives were early marked for sainthood. It wasn't just that the ordinary believer didn't have assurance. It was that the ordinary believer couldn't have assurance. And so in the days of the the counter-reformation a bit later on in the 16th century, the second half of the 16th century, one of the most formidable theologians of the Roman Catholic Church, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, wrote in his book on justification these, to me, stunning words. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is... Now, I suspect most of us know enough about the Reformation to fill in the word justification. But that's not what Bellamine wrote. What Bellamine wrote was the greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. Because of course the whole mode of salvation in the Roman Church, this first principle of justification given, yes, in grace at baptism, but going through a whole order of experience governed by the sacraments of the church until an individual actually was righteous in himself and therefore could be accounted righteous. When faith was fully formed in perfect love and a man who had been justified sacramentally in baptism actually became righteous in himself and therefore could be counted righteous in God's sight. Such a program of salvation could never bring anyone assurance unless by some heavenly vision because nobody could be sure that they were righteous with the righteousness of God, which was one of the reasons Martin Luther so hated the idea of the righteousness of God. And so one of the tragedies of the Roman system and its order of salvation was the manner in which it left ordinary men and women without certainty. And what was Calvin and his young friends beginning, what were they beginning to read in the pages of Scripture? They were beginning to read about men and women, ordinary men and women, who abounded in joy and freedom, who were sure that nothing would ever be able to separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus, who felt the love of God poured into their hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to them. And so we find some of these younger men surrounding Calvin beginning to, as it were, come out into the open. One of them actually was a relative of uh, Calvin, perhaps a cousin, Pierre Robert, who, like Calvin, was an industrious, scholarly young man who eventually would translate the Bible into French. And others, Nicholas Cop, a young man who became rector of the University of Paris, and uh, gave a, a famous speech, his rectoral address, in which many Calvin scholars have thought Calvin himself may possibly have had a hand in expounding the, the words of the Beatitudes and moving towards an evangelical view of the gospel. All we know from Calvin's own lips, at least when he speaks directly, is that God subdued him by an probably unexpected, either a sudden or an unexpected conversion. And in all likelihood, more unexpected than sudden. As he was drawn from this stubborn addiction to the papacy, to a living faith in Jesus Christ. When he came to understand, as he says in the Institutes, what you need to get is to get Jesus Christ. Some scholars have pondered what was the passage that perhaps most influenced Calvin. If I remember rightly, Ford Lewis Battles, who 
the famous translator of the Institutes in 1960 or so believed it was Romans 1, 18-32 on the basis of the way in which the Institutes divides into the knowledge of God the Creator and the knowledge of God the Saviour in Jesus Christ. I've actually very little doubt that that passage did have an influence in Calvin's writing of theology. But I'm somewhat more inclined to think that Calvin may have been more influenced by Paul's letter to the Philippians personally than by the letter to the Romans for this reason. That one of the themes in Philippians to which he keeps returning is that you lose everything for Christ but you gain everything through Christ. So that whether you live or whether you die, Christ is a gain to you. And from one point of view, he was losing everything in giving himself in this evangelical faith to Jesus Christ. Well, by whatever means the event took place, and it looks to me as though it was slow rather than sudden, his stubborn addiction was broken and his heart was subdued and from earlier days in his Christian life the great motto of his life was Lord I offer my heart to you promptly and sincerely and the the personal symbol that he apparently designed himself an open hand and a heart in it and the letters J.C. on either side of it and John Calvin was now Christ's he was in his mid-twenties and he was Christ's and he was involved in a reformation evangelical movement many of them young men some of them young women and some of them given to what uh, I think probably from what Calvin says about other things marginally extreme reactions one of them took place towards the end of 1534 known uh, characteristically as the Night of the Placards, or as we might say, the Night of the Posters, when uh, certain unknown persons went through Paris and by repute even entered into the royal palace and nailed a poster to the bedchamber of the king, a poster of radical evangelical character not only demeaning the mass and other ceremonies but regarding the mass and other ceremonies as, as anti-Christian in the extreme well you can imagine the response to that there, I think there were about 200 people were arrested 20 of them if I remember rightly were executed and one of those who was executed happened to be Calvin's landlord in Paris Calvin's own room apparently was searched. Calvin and these other young brethren and older men and women too essentially became haunted criminals. By the time of his 26th birthday he was a man on the run in a sense a price on his life. Uh, you, need to, you need to balance everything you've ever heard about John Calvin with the fact that he had a criminal stamp on his passport, as it were. And he was a hunted man. And he was on the run for his life, however timid he might have been. If you want excitement in the early part of the 16th century, then you count John Calvin as one of your friends and you will have all the excitement you will ever need for a whole lifetime. And all the young man wanted to be was a scholar. He had published this book, De Clementia, in 1532, and it really was his hope that uh, it would take the publishing world by storm. He'd perhaps get a, a fine academic appointment, and uh, like most authors with their first books, the whole thing proved to be a dreadful disappointment. But all he wanted to do was to study and to write, and he found himself being hunted to the point where he at least realised that these unusual intellectual gifts God had given him must no longer be offered for the plaudits of the academy 
but for the cause of the gospel of Jesus and for the defense of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was this that lay behind his writing as a, a young 20-something-year-old man and then his publishing in uh, the year 1536, a little book that bore the title The Institutes of the Christian Religion. It was just a little paperback in those days. It grew, of course, into a massive work of theology eventually in 1559 and went through various revisions in between. But his great concern at the beginning was to produce a little paperback, a little pocketbook that would edify Christians and that to some degree or another would provide a kind of apology for the Reformed faith that it really was one faithful to scripture and that therefore two those who belonged to the reformed faith and this is an argument that has often been made since even in our own time that those who belonged to the reformed faith would prove to be the best of all possible citizens no matter what state they might belong to well Calvin was on the run he was in Italy, he was in Switzerland he was back in France and his purpose was to move from France and go to Strasbourg and <coughs> find himself a little corner where he could continue his scholarly life. And that's the point at which we move from his conversion to his ministry. He was back home in Mayon in 1536. He gathered, it looks as though one or two members of the family were with him, some friends and it was their purpose to go to Strasbourg. Uh, because of troop movements, it was impossible for him to go directly to Strasbourg. And so his plan was to come down, as it were, the west side and uh, through Geneva for a night or two and then move on to Strasbourg. And here we come upon one of the most famous stories about Calvin. Uh, one of his companions, uh, Louis de Tillet, had... Uh, uh, spoken to some people he knew in Geneva to say that, that uh, young Jean Covin, the author of the Institutes of the Christian Religion is in town and uh, who should appear at uh, the Geneva Hilton or was it Motel 6 in Geneva but William Farrell and uh, to tell Calvin that he was just the man they needed and God had appointed for the city of Geneva that had recently turned to the Reformation externally but certainly was not a, an evangelical city internally. Calvin was just the kind of man they needed except of course as many of you will know Calvin certainly did not think Calvin was just the kind of man that was needed in Geneva and so he resisted Farrell until Farrell told him in no uncertain terms that if he didn't stay God would curse his retirement and so under the fear of the curse of God Calvin stayed there were times when he must have thought it was by staying that the curse of God came upon him it was one thing for Geneva to leave Rome you know they say this about people from Glasgow you can take the Glasgow boy out of Glasgow but you can't take Glasgow out of the Glasgow boy and that was true of many of these Genevans you could take them out of Rome but that was not the same thing as putting the gospel into their souls and so the early years of Calvin's ministry there 1536 to 1538 were frankly largely a nightmare there was tremendous opposition to the word of God. Of course to its preaching. Of course to its preaching. Um, not only then but thereafter uh, you could hear unseemly noises during Calvin's sermon. People chattering. Uh, Calvin being treated with despite in all kinds of ways. But it wasn't just the preaching. It never is just the preaching. It was when the word of God came out of the pulpit in Geneva and these ministers wanted to bring the word of God to bear 
for the conversion of life and the sanctification of men and women that tremendous opposition rose Calvin was abused people would shoot off their guns when the dear man was trying to get some sleep at night they would set their dogs on him they would call their dogs after him he was treated with despite constant friction between the ministers and the people of the city the government in the city until eventually a crisis point was reached in Easter of uh, 1538 uh, and uh, Calvin and the other ministers refused to serve the Lord's Supper on Easter day they preached but they refused to serve the Lord's Supper to the people they were told to leave whenever replacements could be found a couple of days later they were told just to leave and so having preached there on the Sunday by the end of that week Calvin was an exile from Geneva he ended up in Strasbourg he didn't want to stay there his friend <coughs> Farel who had first of all cursed him wasn't there he'd become somewhat attached to his friend and uh, he wanted to go elsewhere and then the second curse came Martin Butzer a wonderful minister at that time in Strasbourg came along and said Strasbourg is the place for you and it may well be that, that Butzer was one of those seasoned ministers who, ministers who realized he could help Calvin perhaps some of the ministers here have had a totally disastrous two year ministry if you've never had that can you imagine what that must be like a totally disastrous two year ministry when you've been kicked out of town what do you need? you need somebody who will come along and put his hand on your shoulder and say just watch how we do it here pick up the vibrations of what ministry means learn all over again we'll give you opportunity we'll encourage you, we'll pray for you we'll minister to you well that was Butzer's intention except that like Farel he found a somewhat resistant Calvin you can understand Calvin just wanted to go back to his books and so uh, Butzer reminded him of the story of Jonah <laughs> well it was one thing for mortal man to say to you that you will be cursed if you don't stay in Geneva but the thought that you might be drowned if you don't stay with Martin Butzer that was another thing altogether but it turned out a period of about three years possibly to be the happiest period in Calvin's life Butzer was a seasoned and wise pastor, counsellor and model he encouraged Calvin to become the pastor of a congregation of French refugees there were apparently about four or five hundred of them possibly the ideal size for a Christian church everybody knows everybody the pastor knows everybody everybody knows the pastor all the gifts that you need are there you don't <coughs> like gifts and Calvin was able there to minister God's word it was also a season uh, when some marginally humorous things happened to Calvin uh, because he was uh, uh, still a bachelor and with little intention of marrying and uh, uh, not particularly keen to have his private life invaded and his friends were determined that they would find him a wife uh, because he seemed to have a, uh, respected authority actually all of his life he had a special respect for authority and for those he respected and, and so they went ahead they tried one or two uh, young women they actually fixed a wedding day Calvin might have been married on the 10th of March 1540 except when he discovered what he needed to know about the girl he wrote I would have had to lose my mind to marry her <laughs> and so sometime later he married a widow a widow of an Anabaptist Idolette de Boer who had uh, a little boy and a little girl and as he says a much maligned statement but actually rather a beautiful statement when she died uh, some nine years later I think he said she never gave me a moment's trouble and she was the best of my friends they had a little boy again his private life is fairly opaque but she gave birth to at least 
one little boy, Jacques, whom uh, Calvin fathered, he was a premature baby and he died as, uh, just as a little thing and Calvin wrote, I'll never forget the first time I read this at a particular period in my life, Calvin wrote out of a broken heart, God is himself a father and he knows what is best for his children. Well, Edelette became his best friend. His best male friend actually may have been his brother, Antoine, who lived in the house. But Edelette became his, his close and loved friend. Uh, she was not a particularly well woman, and after a few years of illness to Calvin's uh, heartbreak, she died in 1549. So there was joy and there was sorrow. There was life and there was also death. Calvin was there and, and uh, served virtually as a nurse to his friend Farrell's nephew when he died of the plague. His friend, a blind pastor who was with them from the Geneva days, died. His uh, relative or cousin Pierre Robert also died. And... Uh, very touchingly left most of his books to Calvin so there were joys and there were sorrows but in this period Calvin I think accomplished two particularly significant things apart from growing into pastoral ministry one was that he revised the institutes and from it being a small paperback it became rather a large paperback and the other thing was he began to write commentaries he wrote a commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans and it's fairly clear that right from the very beginning he realised he was working on the Calvin project he was becoming a minor industry in himself and he saw that what was needed was that doctrine would be clearly taught and applied so that men and women would have what I would call velcro strips in their mind to understand how the message of scripture is shaped and at the same time in a complementary way the scriptures themselves would be expounded in the form of commentaries and he had it seems uh, virtually from the beginning the vision of writing commentaries on at least the whole of the New Testament so that as it were as you, as you studied scripture you would have two things in your hand you would have two different kinds of maps you would have uh, a volume of theology that would, as it were, teach you the route. And you would have these volumes of commentaries that would serve you, as it were, as a whole series of interpreters' houses, if I can borrow John Bunyan's imagery, along the way. So that you would be a whole Bible Christian and an all-doctrine Christian. And that your life would be transformed by your study of the scriptures especially if you were a young student interestingly although he was exiled from Geneva this strange relationship and strained relationship he had with Geneva continued for example at one point the Genevans received a letter from Roman Catholic Cardinal Jacopo Sadoletto he was uh, criticizing the Reformation he was giving them the opportunity to come back to Rome and they had nobody who could answer him and so amazingly they asked Calvin if Calvin would answer Sadoletto. And he wrote this quite extraordinary and very brilliant response to Sadoletto. Sadoletto had spoken about the judgment seat and to put it in the vernacular. Calvin had said to him, well let's meet at the judgment seat. And let each of us see what we will plead at the judgment seat of God. And then I wonder if he regretted from one point of view that he had ever helped the Genevans. In 1540, the nightmare returned and late in the year, he was invited to return to Geneva. His response was both predictable and became very famous. I would submit to death a hundred times that of that cross on which I had to perish daily a thousand times over. But he agreed to return. Technically, he agreed to go on loan he was the kind of David Beckham of the reformed world. He was <laughs> left to Geneva for six months. 
I realise that uh, comparison isn't altogether uh, the best, but you get the point that I'm making. He returned in 1541, as is well known by most people who know anything about Calvin. He returned to the pulpit, made a few remarks, and then he continued at the passage at which he had left off a couple of years before when he had been thrown out of town which in my view is how to say everything to the congregation without actually saying anything to the congregation. And he remained there, rarely leaving the city until his death in 1564. Now, most of these years, Calvin lived on the edge. Actually, I think Calvin was just the kind of man who probably lived on the edge in any case but he lived under enormous pressure. Political pressure. Uh, he was not a citizen of Geneva. He was a refugee in Geneva until just a few years before he died. He never had any political power. There was almost non-stop opposition to gospel reformation. As late as the, the early 1550s, he believed that he would still have to leave Geneva again. And only in 15. 55 was the church allowed the right of excommunication by the city fathers and in that sense the church was beginning to be allowed to be the church but not only that political pressure also great personal pressure regularly under attack from enemies and as some of the ministers here will perhaps know by painful experience some of those who most want you to come are among those who are first to want you to leave and that was certainly the case with Calvin in Geneva and then there were other trials there was Michael Servetus um, who was a blasphemous heretic was, was regarded in all the empire as a heretic was under sentence of death and uh, who it seems very deliberately came to Geneva in order to throw the gauntlet down to Calvin perhaps encouraged by Calvin's enemies that they would be there for him and uh, despite all that is said about Calvin in that context he that is, Servetus was offered the opportunity to return to France for trial, but begged to be tried in Geneva, perhaps hoping that the gauntlet that he was throwing down would never be lifted up by Calvin. Calvin himself asked that he would be executed by some other way than burning. And then there was Balzac, a strange, unstable, originally a Carmelite father. He was a physician in the court of René of France at Ferrara. He was employed there as a spy. Came to Geneva in 1551. He appreciated much of what Calvin taught, but he had a deep distaste for Calvin's teaching on predestination. And at one of the meetings of the congregations that met for discussion and Bible study on Friday mornings at Geneva, Balzac sailed into the subject of predestination, attacking Calvin full on, not realizing that Calvin had actually stepped into the meeting and was listening to the whole thing. Balzac became an implacable enemy and wrote uh, in, a, in a libelous way and a very destructive way of Calvin in a manner that has haunted Calvin's memory ever since and the ongoing opposition to the gospel and to the reformation we might ask in this context how was it this was John Knox's judgment of Geneva when he went there how was it that Geneva changed from this quasi-political reformation to a genuine gospel reformation and become what Knox called the most perfect school of Christ since the days of the apostles <coughs> actually the answer is very straightforward the key one might say is in the pocket and it was two simple things it was to use the language of the acts of the apostles prayer and the ministry of the word. One of the first things Calvin did when he returned to Geneva 
was to institute a day of prayer. Now, I've been involved with institutions that have instituted a day of prayer. They usually take place once a year or twice a year. This day of prayer in Geneva took place every single Wednesday. And there was a specific gathering for prayer between 8 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock. So that along with the, the regular praying of the congregation, the regular praying in the services, there was this devotion to pray for the benediction of God upon Geneva and upon the churches that were being planted out of Geneva. And the other thing that went along with this, and tends to get more prominence than the first of these two things, was the ministry of the Word of God. The sermons in the morning on Sunday the children's service at noon, the afternoon service in Geneva, the weekday services in Geneva. And Calvin was preaching three times a week and then when his strength afforded it, he was encouraged to preach every single weekday. Beza says that uh, there were about a thousand people would crowd into the cathedral in Geneva to listen to this frail asthmatic man minister the word of God. Never a funny story. Um, but working the word of God like a potter into the clay of God's people there in Geneva. Sometimes preaching ten times a week, perhaps forty minutes or more every week pouring the word of God into the people of God and beside that giving his three lectures in the Old Testament to the students each week going to the consistory on Thursday mornings taking part in the congregations which were originally informal Bible studies but when you've got Calvin at your house group <laughs> and everybody's saying as they tend to do well what does this say to you what do you think this means? Well, if Calvin's there, everybody turns to him and says, well, what do you think this means? And Calvin says, it doesn't matter what I think this means. Let's find out what it means itself. And so you get another 40-minute sermon from Calvin. And it was by this simple means, the key that Christ had put into the pocket of the apostles, that the Church of Jesus Christ was built in Geneva that wasn't all he did he didn't just prepare sermons go to prayer meetings give his lectures and enjoy his lunch he tells us uh, of an earlier period in his life he's, he's scribbling a note to William Farrell as the messenger arrives and he says when the present messenger wished to carry along with him the beginning of my book there were still 20 leaves still 20 pages it required me to revise in addition there was the public lecture and also to preach then there were four letters that needed to be written there were some disputes to settle to reply to more than 10 interruptions in the meantime you will therefore excuse me if my letter should be both brief and inaccurate <laughs> and not altogether unusual to have this uh, such demands were on him that eventually in 1551 he wrote to Heinrich, Heinrich Bullinger said I'm absolutely tired and fed up of writing and it was at that point that uh, he was given some secretaries to take down his dictation and most of this time he was a very sick man he suffered from at least Malaria, tuberculosis, he had heart problems, he had gout, he suffered severely from migraine, he had kidney stones, and the remedies for the kidney stones were worse than the stones themselves. He had digestive problems, and he was, he was often uh, uh, a man who, who suffered deeply from sleeplessness. Now that explains one thing, that explains one thing in himself of which Calvin was constantly critical. A man who lives physically and spiritually on the edge is liable to be just a little irritable. And Calvin was conscious that he could be just a little irritable. Sometimes the effort not to be irritable put him in his bed for a whole day. <coughs> the, the, the mental response, the headaches that uh, 
resultant. Actually, that's one of the reasons why I rather think that he may well at least have had a hand in the hymn that's attributed to him. I greet thee whom I sure redeemer are. And why it was so wonderful to him that for an irritable and irritated man by nature under great pressure, Jesus Christ was kind. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. Well, you can understand that self-criticism. And you might want to make it of yourself. The other self-criticism you might find more difficult to swallow. It was this. He felt he was lazy. And it's one of the most frequent things we discover his...